Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's go there. With Shira and Ryan. Entertainment. Music. Pop culture. LGBT plus news. Let's go there. Start now. Hello, hello, and happy Friday. This is Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan, where we catch you up on the news of the day, pop culture, our crazy lives, and so much more crazy lives you know it's always cray cray <laughs> it is it is it is but i'm happy it's friday i know it's been a fast week though i must say you know that when we had the guest on to talk about like how do you start conversations with strangers and then she, <laughs> she was like you talk about the weather and all that i feel like with us is that your go-to uh no i feel oh. like it's usually like wow it's a friday right like, how was your week? Or like, you know, on a Monday, you're like, wow, the weekend, right? It's, it's Monday. Monday. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so basic. And every week, by the way, we do the same thing. Okay, then and let's switch it up then. <sighs> switch it up. You got all the great ideas. All uh, the great ideas. Well, since I can't talk about whatever world day it is. I've been banned from going into the International Day of XYZ. Well, you, if you're going to do it, it has to be funny. That is a lot of pressure. <laughs> Maybe it's I'm true. just trying to be informative, okay? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, hit us up. Let us know how you're feeling today, what you're up to for the weekend at LGT Show on social media. We love to hear from you. And coming up on the show today, we're so excited because we have uh, these gay dads and the author (laughs) of the, um, they're authors of a book about a newborn baby they found abandoned at a train station. This is a real story. They made into a book. Yeah. And they're joining us to share the entire thing. I wouldn't be shocked if it was soon to be a lifetime story. I mean, I mean, honestly, it seems like a lifetime movie. It's amazing. Or the next TikTok series. No. Everything ends up on TikTok. Uh, that's coming up at 4.35 p.m. Pacific, 7.35 p.m. Eastern. And Lambda Legal joins us to discuss the new anti-trans bills being pitched in North Carolina. That's in 30 minutes. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. The House Ethics Committee has opened an investigation into Representative Matt Gates. This isn't that surprising. Over what they're calling an array of alleged lawbreaking and violations of House rules stemming from a federal sex trafficking inquiry. Uh, all of this could lead them to examining sexual misconduct, him sharing inappropriate images in the Capitol, illegal drug use, and acceptance of bribes. House of Cards. House of Cards. Now, April 9th is National Name Yourself Day. 
uh, a proposed law progressing through Arkansas's legislature that would allow educators to misgender and dead name students if they wish and protect them from reprimands if they choose to do so. House Bill 1749 passed the Arkansas House of Representatives yesterday and is now in consideration in the state Senate's Education Committee. I'm telling you, some of these places we report, like, the bad place. These are, these, this is crazy. But it feels like people don't have anything else better to do with their lives. Right. And that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so, you know, today a lot of people are mourning around the world. It is time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. Hip-hop legend DMX has died, um, and it was confirmed by his family. He passed away Friday following um, an overdose that left him in a vegetative state. He was only 50, Mm. um, which is really sad. Here's a statement from his family. We are deeply saddened to announce today that our loved one, DMX, birth name of Earl Simmons, passed away at 50 years old at White Plains Hospital with his family by his side after being placed on life support for the past few days. And so... This has really taken a toll on a lot of the community and a lot of people are just remembering how special he was and and, and having necessary conversations about addiction and mental health and and dealing with those past things. And Mm. um, so I'm sending a lot of love to his family. And then, of course, we all know that... um, Prince Philip passed as well. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle mourned the death of Prince Philip uh, on Friday with a short and sweet message um, on their website, basically just saying thank you for your service. Uh, You will be missed. I mean, that's literally all it said. Um, But it's on their um, foundation nonprofit website, Archwell. Um, And yeah, I mean, a lot of people are still speaking out about it. He died at the age of 99. Uh, Buckingham Palace confirmed that news. So, yeah. Long life, 99. I mean, for sure. So it's kind of like, you know. Yeah, everyone saw it coming. He was getting sick and everything. And now the question that I was going to say they saw it coming, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, oh my God, this is not good. Anyway. I mean, the thing is, when you're that old, I mean, my grandfather was 94, and at every point, I'm like, every time my mom calls, I'm like, am I going to get that call? It's not like it's a Benjamin Button, so it's kind of like you have to... That'd be cool, though. No, it wouldn't. I, I think when you're ready to go, you're ready to go. Although um, you do end up kind of dying the other way. Uh, no, but did Benjamin Button die the other way? Well, you kind of end up becoming a baby, and then... Oh, I guess that's true. Okay, we got to wrap up. We gotta... I know, I'm <laughs> Um... <laughs> Anyway, check out more of that story at uh, wearechannelq.com. And, of course, follow us on social at LGT Show. Coming up on the show, Biden has unveiled his $1.52 trillion budget proposal. We're breaking it all down, what it means, why we should care about it next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Biden administration unveiled its first $1.52 trillion budget proposal to Congress today. And here to break it all down is Jackie Capel, who's our political commentator we love having on. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice you guys are live again. Yes, Woo-hoo. we are in studio doing it up. Um, so how does this proposal give us a glimpse into President Biden's policy agenda for the 2022 fiscal year? Because the things he proposals proposes really hits different things that he's trying to do across the board and what he's trying to focus on. Yeah, no, I mean, it's very clear what his what. Well, very clear, maybe not. It's a very large budget. Uh, so there are a lot of programs. But he clearly I, I will say this. What is clear is he's trying he's setting out to prove that 
some of the way that you solve these big, massive structural problems is, in fact, by government help. Right. I think what we've seen with this pandemic is that the government's involvement, and I think particularly in the past couple of months, you've seen a ramp up of, of government really, you know, plugging holes and, and there being a pretty clear plan on what to do. There's there's more of a federal response. Right. And that really speaks to this idea that you do want to rely on government sometimes that government can help you. Right. It's essentially uh, a lot of people have said this, right? It's sort of a return to FDR, the New Deal, that government can help solve large-scale cultural and societal issues. It is essentially a turning—turning uh, turning the I don't even say turning the nose, but definitely sort of rejecting Reaganism, where it was, you know, essentially that the problem is government. Biden is very clearly indicating that government is part of the solution. Uh, and, and his budget really indicates as such. You're talking about, you know, schools, money to help serve low-income children. You're talking about putting money toward fighting or researching cancer. And all of, I think it's for every single agency, they're designing the budget such that climate change and adapting to the damages and the, the you know, concerns regarding climate change are in various ways mitigated. So it's, it's a pretty clear budget, and it's, it's certainly uh, very different from Trump, although I, I believe if I re- read correctly, I think the Department of Defense is getting an increase as well. Um, it's just that Trump focused a lot on military, uh, and Biden is, is broader, quite frankly. Yeah, I was wondering, and this might be an obvious question, but what's the comparison here to like what Trump did versus what you know Biden's kind of doing in this space to kind of give a real plain view of oh, there is something different happening here. Well, I mean, it's a total. I would say it's a pretty significant priority shift, right? So, uh, military, border security, you know, like building a wall. So this is a great example: building a wall, as we all know was like the singular the singular priority for Trump. That is a very different way of addressing the immigration, a lot of people are using the word, the immigration crisis, whereas from what Biden wants to do. Biden actually wants to provide support and money to Central American countries. One of the reasons people are fleeing these countries is because they are dangerous. The infrastructure is poor. There are no jobs. There's no schooling. So it's essentially using economic tools to bolster the economies and the, these, these Central American countries such that life in those countries is good enough that people stay and that they don't risk their lives and they don't come to the U.S. because life is actually okay there, right? A lot of the immigrants who come, what they cite is, it's too dangerous, I have no job prospects, so it's worth risking my life. Biden is taking a totally different uh, tact in terms of, Uh, immigration to try and, and, quote, solve the problem, as it were. Yeah, that's also assuming you can also trust the governments in those places, right? So I think that's also a layered issue. If we can barely solve our own problems, are we going to, like, fully solve other countries' problems? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's fair. And and look, we've given money to Central American countries, and and it's a fair thing, a fair argument to make to say, well, how much good has that done? But, uh, you know, Trump, Trump was eager to cut money to these Central American countries. But if you if you just make their economies worse, you just make the lives of the people there worse. Oh, yeah. Meaning they're going to do whatever they can 
to come here. Now, does that mean that money is not does not get corrupted, that there are not problems? Certainly. But this is this is a potential tool. And maybe with an influx of this money, it they do a better job of tracking it or or, uh, you know, protecting it from corruption. But that's certainly mm. the, the model that they're using. Well, Jackie Cobell, thanks again for joining us today and have a great weekend. Thanks so much. You too. Uh, coming up on the show, the North Carolina bill that would force school st- staffers to out trans kids. We have Lambda Legal joining us for that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Three Republican legislators in North Carolina have introduced what is being called one of the most repressive anti-transgender health care bills in the nation. Joining us right now to talk more about this is Carl Charles, who's a staff attorney in Lambda Legal's Southern Regional Office in Atlanta, Georgia. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, um, Sharon Ryan. Yeah. So tell us more about the Youth Health Protection Act, this Senate Bill 514 that's being pitched. I mean, the name couldn't be more wrong, right? It does the complete opposite of protect youth. In fact, it it ensures that uh, transgender youth in particular will be singled out for a a really incredible degree of harm. So not only will uh, trans youth be denied the medically necessary care that their doctors have indicated is appropriate for the treatment of gender dysphoria, But it looks like the text of this bill actually will require teachers and other uh, school administrators and staff to police all minors uh, gender presentation in schools. It, it, quote, says that uh, teachers must notify a minor's parents or guardians if the minor exhibits symptoms of gender dysphoria and and note here gender nonconformity. So we're not just talking about this bill affecting trans youth. We're literally talking about uh, people in schools, right? Trusted officials and adults in schools being required by the state to police young people's gender, right? Not even trans youth. This could apply to cisgender youth. If uh, if, if somebody deems someone's gender presentation to be uh, nonconforming with, uh, say, the sex that's listed on their birth certificate. Um, in addition... This bill is particularly harmful because it reaches young people up to age 21, which is past the age of majority in North Carolina. All the bills we've seen so far have stopped at the age of majority. This bill tries to do harm to people who are old enough by the standards that these uh, bill drafters have devised uh, to make these decisions, right? Typically, you are not, you know, you're no longer designated a minor, so you can make these decisions uh, for yourself without your parents' um, oversight. Uh, but this bill goes further than that, right? And it's it's going to restrict the access for um, for people age up to 21. Um, I'll also add the bill uh, tries to ban uh, the use of state funds for any kind of uh, gender-affirming care for trans people through, like, state health insurance plans. It also, um, it also has a provision that's going to protect people who are engaged in conversion therapy. So, I mean, this bill is just a Pandora's box of badness. Hmm. Um, And I I, I know that's a bit of hyperbole, but it really is terrible. I mean, it's kind of like the perfect way to explain it, though. What's the probability of this bill actually becoming a law? So we're hearing that it's unlikely that it will pass, and that's due to a couple of key things, right? So first of all, due to the makeup of the state, house, and senate, Um, the Republicans do not have a veto-proof majority, right? So Governor Roy Cooper is a Democrat. 
let's say, worst case scenario, this bill were to pass and get to the governor's desk, it's incredibly unlikely he would sign it. In fact, he would probably veto it. And in order to override a veto in North Carolina, the each uh, House, uh, I'm sorry, the House and the Senate each need a three-fifths majority. And the Republicans don't currently have that just with the ma- the member makeup as it is now. They would need to get some Democrats on their side in order for that to happen. And that's just not happening. So I, I want to make clear here that this the 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 challenge here for these uh, Republican uh, legislators who've written this awful bill uh, is is really much more difficult than what we saw happening in Arkansas, where it was just a simple majority that was required for a governor uh, override. Definitely. But it still feeds a narrative, right? When you put this out there and people are hearing it, it normalizes people thinking this. And it's, that's oh, very completely. dangerous. Absolutely, sure. The the bill is chock full of so much just anti-trans, anti-science vitriol. Um, and and I shouldn't say that, that just because there's a low likelihood of it going into effect, as you said, the impact here is really significant, right? And it's, it's not dissimilar from what we saw in North Carolina in 2016 when HB2 was happening, right? The impact that had on the uh, on the trans and gender non-conforming and non-binary people living in North Carolina was significant, right? It was particularly awful to know that your state was trying to make it basically impossible for you to exist in any public space. Um, and and a, the, the language of this bill really aims to do some of those same harms. Well, thank you so much for your work and for being with us today to explain all of this. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I'm glad you all are making sure folks are aware of what's going on. Definitely. It's what we do here at Channel Q every (laughs) single day. Uh, That was Carl Charles, a staff attorney in Lambda Legal Southern Regional Office in Atlanta, Georgia. Coming up on the show, should LinkedIn add stay-at-home parent as an employment option? What the platform is doing to normalize caregiving? That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. So we've been reporting about this. There was a huge amount of women who left the workforce in September. Uh, By February, the gender gap, uh, women closed the gap to 56% of pandemic job losses, 56%. In March, more women entered the workforce, which is a hopeful sign. But the reality is that there are a lot of parents working from home and a lot of mothers that take that time off to raise their family, right? Right. Yeah, Uh, And there's a gap in employment that we haven't talked about until I think the pandemic where it started to be talked about more, you know, being at home with your family, what's that like, how you get back into it. Um, And so LinkedIn is trying to, I guess, approach that conversation. And they're including these new uh, features on the platform where you could say you're a stay-at-home parent, or a, uh, you know, a, they said was a stay-at-home dad, a stay-at-home mom, a stay-at-home parent. To allow full-time parents, they say, and caretakers to more accurately display their roles. So is this something we think is a good thing? They're saying it normalizes caregiving. But should we really need to, should we, or should we have to disclose what we did in those gaps or what we're doing with our lives in that way? Or is that just too much? Um, I think we should, to be honest, I don't have a problem with someone disclosing that they um, are a stay-at-home parent. I don't I don't see the issue. I think especially now, more than ever, those explaining of gaps are just saying, you know, 
the pandemic was something that affected me heavily within in career and I had to take on being a stay-at-home parent and and maybe even using that to say I've learned so many skills with dealing with myself that I could apply into real life spaces Mm -hmm. that could be really even more intriguing and yeah I mean I do still feel like there could be this stigma when it comes to stay-at-home parents or just stay-at-home mom specifically because misogyny. And, like, if you're saying, um, you know, if you're saying that this is what you're doing, then I don't I don't see the problem with kind of being in the interview or putting it on your resume. But it does feel weird. Like, why add that on your resume? Well, they're adding things also like parental leave, family care, sabbatical. Uh, the, the changes are global but won't appear as an option instantly for everyone. Here's the thing. I I think that what we do in our lives outside of what we deem as quote unquote a career or employment is just as important in terms of building skills right. and like yeah. building yourself up as a person. So why not include on a resume? Like in the past, it'd be like, oh, I need to hide the fact that I took a year off or I went and did a like I traveled around the world or maybe I took care of my grandparent or my parent. I don't know. Are you putting that on your resume? I'm saying this is like, are we going to see this in the future? This is something I'm wondering. I know, I'm not putting that on my resume. I don't even, to be honest, I don't even know what I just said a while ago. But maybe you shouldn't put it on your resume. Like, what's the point? Maybe it's just for a conversation when it happens. Yeah, because obviously everyone, and we've had on people that are like, you know, recruiters and HR folks on the show talking about this. Like, how do you kind of get back and explain the gap year? And that is what they say. You just say the pandemic. I think that's fine to be like, oh, yeah, the pandemic's happened and I had to become a stay-at-home parent. Everyone is going to be able to relate. And I'm hoping that they're not going to like knock that off on you. Because if they do, then that's not really the place you want to be. Of course. It's just like everything. And I talked about it today on my Twitter about relevance are you irrelevant because you take yourself out of a certain game or if a pandemic knocks you out of the game i'm not talking about the mom being a parent i mean that's not just about pandemic this is a stigma of being a caregiver you're out of the game for five years possibly and sometimes that happens oh well if you're out of the game for five years then you're gonna have to kind of do what you need to do um, or at least show in the interview that you've been staying up on it in some way and that's the thing and so listen I think that this is a very much deeper subject we should talk about but at the very least if my thing is if you add that to your LinkedIn what it could help possibly is build community and you could find other people going through what you're going through and the hope is that you realize you're not alone and you have the I power just to join shift. a mommy group well maybe it's LinkedIn like- will be the new mommy groups Uh, Or the daddy groups or the parent groups. I think there probably are places like that on LinkedIn, which is fine. But, like, I don't know about your resume. That feels a little weird. All right. Well, what do you think? Would you add that to your LinkedIn at LGT Shows or you can find us on social media? Coming up, West Virginia may be the next state to ban trans athletes. More details on that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are back and coming up on the show, we're going to be getting into updates from the Derek Chauvin trial for George Floyd's death and why states keep repeating the same mistake as it comes to marijuana legalization. But first, let's get into uh, some what's trending this hour. West Virginia is close to becoming the next state to bar transgender athletes from competing in school sports consistent with their gender identity. The House version of this covers only middle and high school athletics, while the Senate legislation includes college and university sports as well. And so far, 56 bills like that have been introduced in states around the nation this year out of a total of more than 200 anti-LGBTQ plus bills, of which a record of 105 specifically target trans people. 
Most of the anti-trans bills that don't deal with sports seek to deny gender-affirming health care to trans youth. And only one of those has become law in Arkansas, where legislators this week overrode Governor Asa Hutchinson's veto. And in an odd turn of events, it seems like Republicans are actually concerned with super spreader events when it has to do with the border crisis. Here's Representative Steve Scalas. And you've got the Donna detention facility right down the street that has a capacity of 250 people that has over 4,000 in that facility today in the middle of a global pandemic. Where's President Biden's concern about the science that he used to talk about when he was a candidate that now he has abandoned? He is letting, they said about 10% of the people in that facility right now have COVID-19. And they're not six feet apart. They're not three feet apart. Many without masks transmitting COVID. They're super spreader events. And you don't see any concern by President Biden for that. Once again, really interesting that they're concerned about super spreader events, considering how... uh they're not ever. So the irony continues. But that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, right? Okay, so Travis Barker and Kourtney Kardashian just took their relationship to the next level. It is time for the T-Report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So Travis debuted a new uh, tattoo on Thursday. Mm. Basically, he got Courtney's first name inked in ink above his left nipple. How beautiful. How Cute. romantic. I wonder what the significance of the left nipple is or if that's the only place he has left for tattoos. Actually, he's so he's so actually covered in tats from head to toe, they had to layer it. So literally, her name is just layered on top of another tattoo. It wasn't even like, oh, I'm going to make a cover something up and then make some space for it. No, he was like, oh, no, this space above this tattoo of a clown is perfect. Because honestly, he is a clown for getting Courtney's name tattooed on his body. They're not even married, and they've been dating since Valentine's Day. What in the hell are they doing? YOLO commitment. No, that's stupid commitment. That's like that's what it should be called, the YOLO commitment. I am never getting anyone's name tattooed on me. That is a terrible, terrible mistake. We did say, though, remember we said this once um, for Let's Go There, if we like hit a next stage or we go get syndicated, how we would get LGT tattooed on us? I still would do that because, it's a, I mean, it's a significant thing. I still yeah. would do that. But I'm not dating you. I'm not having sex with oh, you. Oh, that's what you think. Like, I'm just, I don't I don't really understand that. There's no ring on their finger. They I haven't say, been dating for long. I agree. This I w- relationship is stupid. I would, I don't know if it's stupid, but I wouldn't it's get stupid. a name. I would get something significant like that. It means something, but a name is a bit. With much. someone you're dating? No, I think for like, two months. I would. Uh, no, I would though. I've talked to my partner, and when we, you know, get engaged or we get married or I do an official partnership of some sort, we are going to get like he's going to connect his ring finger to my heart ring. Okay, I think you just really wanted to tell us about that yeah, instead you know, of actually talking about the topic <laughs> because that you're talking about next stage level yeah, of I appreciate like that, relationship. Yeah. It it's is not a compliment. I'm just saying y'all are in the next slate. It's questionable. I always question, and it never goes right. You never hear a celebrity that is like, I'm so happy I did this. It always goes south. It's weird. I don't like it. Are y'all into getting tattoos of your significant other's name? I don't know. Let us know at LGT Show on social media. So I can judge you, to be quite honest. That's really what I want to do. I just want to judge you. Um, and yeah, that is your tea report. I'm done spilling. Now, as more communities defund the police, who will keep us safe in a world without police? We've got some of those answers next. 
As we look at new models for the police, there are many different theories of what works and what we have seen not work, obviously. Meanwhile, in places like Los Angeles, there was a vote for a $36 million police funding boost because crime has surged. So what's the answer here? We like to look at these discussions and have them here on Let's Go There, of course. Hariz Ziad joins us right now, author of Black Boy Out of Time, who wrote a very compelling um, statement around this. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. You, uh, your work looks at a world without police and prisons. How does something like that get implemented? Yeah, I think in a lot of black families and communities, we've seen this on like a smaller scale already. Um, in my in my life, like my, my grandmother, she struggled with bipolar disorder, and so a lot of, of the time she had mental health crises that um, would in other circumstances, prompt a call to police or something like that. And so as a family, we had to build up other ways of managing those crises um, just because when the police were called, it usually ended up exacerbating that. And so I think we've already started doing that on a smaller scale in different communities out of necessity. And so my vision is just how do we expand that to work on a much larger scale. Um, because as you've seen, we have the, the way the police interact with things like mental health crises usually exacerbate problems, and particularly in black communities. Yeah, I think um, you po posed the question, you know, who will protect us without police? And you said we will. And I think that's interesting in the sense of it feels like you're giving, you know, our communities, our people around a lot more credit than honestly they earned or deserved. <laughs> Do you think it's realistic to think that, you know, us as a community, as a whole, as this country, not even just black folks, um, do you think it's it's that's they deserve enough credit to be like, oh, yeah, we'll save each other. We'll be here for each other. We'll police each other in a way. Well, I think we deserve credit enough to not be seen as like monsters. I think we don't have a lot of the tools to do that right now. Um, a lot of us, you know, are dealing with our own, you know, mental health issues or other issues that might get in the way of doing some of that work. But I think when given the resources and the 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 imagination to to exist in a community like that, I think we all have the capacity to do that. I don't think we we come out of the womb and are like. Uh, I, I don't want to exist with the people who are around me. Um, but the the culture that we live in has taught us over years and years and years um, that we can't do that. And so I think we adopt that. And that is uh, exemplified in the ways that we behave amongst each other. And so um, I think it, it takes a lot of deconditioning, a lot of unlearning how we deal with conflict. But I definitely don't think that it's impossible for us to do that. Um, and like I said, I've seen it on smaller scales. And the ways that we interact with people we know, um, how, how, how impossible is that to, to expand that to people that, you know, we might not know but are still part of our communities? I think it's just about expanding our vision of what family means, what community means. Um, and then that, that, that kind of society becomes possible. Yeah, you bring up so many interesting things. Like, then this was even off my questions. Like, you made me think about, you know, Bhutan, it's the happiest place on earth. And I've, I've talked about this, like, why don't we look at what they do and then implement it here? And then you think, well, the population is much smaller. It does get more complicated and harder when you scale anything like that up. For sure. um, and, and I think that's the inherent issue when you look at um, creating ways of doing things like an in terms of a blanket way of doing things, everything, every community requires a different approach. That's also the issue. 
Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. And I think one of the reasons that we come up with the problems that we come up against, um, not just with policing, but in general, is that we don't look at the specific needs of communities at the level that we should. I don't think that we have to operate um, uh, uh, society um, trying to give millions of people the same prescription of how to interact. I think we can take things to a more local scale and, and, and and do things within our communities and be led by that. Um, but it would take reshaping how we think of government and how we um, think of the boundaries between communities in order to do that. Um, but it's, it's certainly not impossible. Should we be, in our first step, kind of redefining the, how we view and define the word safety? Yeah, and I think that's a great point because I think so much of how we think about safety is so individualist. And so we think about it in terms of like this person who's like who might be a part of my community, but I don't I don't think about community in the sense of like if something affects him, then it's going to affect me too. Even though that that's like by definition how community works. And so if we think about safety on a communal level, um, it changes things. And so then if there is like a, a someone who um, you might not have as much grace for for whatever reason, um, that's not the defining factor in how you're going to approach them because you're thinking about the grace that you have for the community as a whole. It's not about this specific person. Um, it's about the safety of this community. And what does that look like? Sometimes that might not look like what the safety of just when you're just focusing on yourself might look like. Mm. Well, thank you uh, so much for your work and for being here. We hope hope to have you back. Yeah, thank you. That was Hari Ziad, author of Black Boy Out of Time. Now coming up, the mistake that states keep making when it comes to marijuana legalization. That's next. Let's go there. With Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Cannabis is the country's fastest growing industry. According to this article in Slate.com, sales will more than double by 2025. It also helps to contribute to the states that they're in, by the way, all those things that we can't afford from infrastructure to uh, schools to housing, all that. That could come from cannabis. Legalization has done a lot as it relates to criminal reform uh, as well and justice. Some states have created programs to expunge criminal records for minor pot-related offenses, too. Uh, but there is a gap. There's a mistake they keep on making. And joining us right now is Alex Halperin, a journalist and the editor and publisher of Weed Week. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So what's in the gap? What are states missing here? What are they doing wrong? So for, for a long time, there's been a lot of talk about something the cannabis world calls equity. And that's basically the idea that um, black and brown communities were suffered disproportionately during the war on drugs or from the, the police tactics associated with the war on drugs. And the, the idea of equity is that these communities and entrepreneurs in these communities, in primarily minority communities, should be able to have cannabis business and, and be able to profit from this industry, which for a long time oppressed them, essentially, um, because it was illegal. And the thing is, it's, it's a very challenging problem to solve, because there are now all these very big cannabis companies out there, um, 
that are very well capitalized and have a lot of money and are making a lot of money. And so it, it's very hard for smaller entrepreneurs to, to get started. And states are trying to create laws to make that happen, but the state laws often aren't doing a good job of it. Yeah, because I do think about like kind of those mom and pop sto- like stores that are trying to, you know, dip their toe into this industry and actually make, you know, money and, and actually some equity for themselves. But they're having such a hard time doing it because something that you named in this article, MSOs. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that and what that actually is? So MSOs, that's short for multi-state operator. So those are basically like the big the big companies. So this is a federally illegal industry, and that creates all sorts of problems. Cannabis companies have to pay more in taxes than normal companies. Cannabis companies don't have access to bank accounts because banks are afraid to serve them because that could get them in trouble. So, but these big, well-capitalized companies, which have raised a lot of money, are able to sort of throw money at these problems. Whereas for small mom and pop entrepreneurs, they're a big problem. So states are trying to create, or some states anyway, both New York and New Jersey, which both legalized recently, are trying to create sort of reserving license pathways for um, small entrepreneurs or um, entrepreneurs from specially designated impact zones. But it's a very hard problem to solve because states don't really have the the expertise to you, you a state couldn't help like a mom and pop entrepreneur compete with Starbucks but that's essentially what they're being asked to do or what they're trying to do with with cannabis and it, it, it's just not working very well yeah including I mean when you say small mom and pop we mean minority owned businesses who've typically been cut out and actually put behind bars for this and now still kind of the um, white owners are still winning the game, right? And so that's, you know, the the business and the industry talks about a lot. Um, So I guess uh, that is that just the solution and that's where we land? What's ahead? Well, I I think probably to, to make it work at all, the, the MSOs probably have to get involved and they have to be the laws, I think, should probably incentivize them to invest in minority owned businesses or perhaps ha- create executive training programs and or, or franchise models that would create entry points for minority minority owned businesses. And right now, sort of the, the MSOs, which they have a lot of money because they're they're operating dozens of stores and and they've raised a lot of money a lot of them for example trade publicly in Canada but and and their their social media feeds and stuff are very woke but but they're not really investing in the diversity of their organizations or the diversity of the industry and and as a result um small businesses and especially minority owned businesses are at a big disadvantage. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for being here and opening our eyes to this issue. Uh, That was Alex Halperin, journalist and the editor and publisher of weedweek.net. Have a great night. Thanks so much. Coming up on the show, experts are giving us a dire warning about aliens, what they're advising us humans if we encounter an alien. That's next.
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We love to talk about aliens here on this show. Any chance we get, if there's a story, we're talking about it. Thank you. That's why we have this go-to music. You're welcome. So, Michio Kaku, a professor of theoretical physics at City College of New York and an all-around pop science icon, has issued a warning about extraterrestrials and our human efforts to seek them out. He said this during an interview at The Guardian. He was promoting his new book, The God Equation. He said, I think that's a terrible idea. Oh, wait, stop, pause real quick. Now continue. In the past, he theorized that humans may meet their extraterrestrial counterparts within this century. And that might be thrilling to a lot of us. A lot of people are talking about it. I love aliens. We imagine it. What would we do if we meet an alien? Outer space. I'm so into this. Well, what would you do if you encountered an alien? Who knows? How do you know we haven't already? I mean, I might be an alien. I don't think you're that lucky. Wow. Um, Oh, wait one second. So a, lo- so a lot of people, you know, we, we look back at E.T., you know. No. What's first that? of all, I don't believe aliens are these monster-looking, creepy things like E.T. giving nightmares to How? children. I think he, he aliens been like a look just like us. How We are aliens to them. Well, of course. but So aliens look, probably look just as normal, but just more adapted to their own planet climate. I don't know. E.T. was cute, even though I did e. have nightmares about him cute. as well, by the way. E.T. was like literally something they... D- Wait one second. They dug up. I don't know. really need to make that long. <laughs> you know my best um, impersonation? I don't do a lot of impressions. I don't want you to do this. E.T. Bon <laughs> to be honest, we could have lived without it. <laughs> so, but seriously, though, what? I don't think aliens are mean. I don't. I could never picture them. Well, an alien. Listen, now there, maybe there are, you know, some planets who are plotting to take over and trying to, you know, take over. Listen, this guy, Kaku, says, be more cautious than eager to make contacts. I think that's like rude alien propaganda. They're trying to create rifts between us. It's humans doing what humans do. And and let's, I mean, no shade, but is this some type of alien racism? Hey, you heard it here first, so let's go there. That's my next thesis. He said, personally... I think that aliens out there could be friendly, but we can't gamble on it. So I think we'll make contact, but we should do it very carefully. Why? I understand, yes, you want to know who you're dealing with and who you're talking to and and what you're dealing with. But I I just don't think that aliens are that bad. And also, we're we're the selfish ones. They're probably looking at us like we're the worst. They're probably afraid of us. What if we're the crazy ones? The horrible ones, the nightmares. We are. We are. What do you mean? What do you mean, what if? Well, this guy also has another alarming prediction for the near future. Self-replicating robots. Now that sounds like a bad idea. That sounds like iRobot, Will Smith, fighting for his life. Maybe the, the aliens we should be scared of are the ones we're creating on this earth. I'll leave it there. Before this it's sound over. effect it's ends, done. I cut it off. It is so. <laughs> Let done. us know what you would do if you encountered an alien at LGT Show on social media. I probably would turn on my phone, be like, "Wait, oh, I need to live stream this. I need to capture this for TikTok." <laughs> Coming up on the show, uh, when does Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg expect cruises to be back up and running? Well, his response next on What's Trending this hour. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up, why having less things makes us happier and how to cut the things you don't need out of your life. We need to do a segment about buyer's remorse. Well, that's for next week. Well, I mean, be excited about it. I oh, just... Oh, my um, God. That, my, sorry, my headset. That was really loud, your voice in my head. Continue. <sighs> okay, so... I ordered, I'm mm-hmm. furnishing my apartment still, and like it's it's getting there. I feel like for the most part, it's pretty nice. Yeah, I'm very proud of you. Um, thank you. And I ordered a whole bunch of stuff, but then I just started to feel so bad that I ordered a whole bunch of stuff mm. to like complete the process, yeah. and then I completely canceled it. And like now I can't stop thinking about it. Like Maybe I should call them back and re-buy it again. I don't know. I don't know. Do people deal with this? Buyer's remorse? Or is it maybe is it just me because I have anxiety around everything? I think a lot of people have that. There are very few people that I know that are not triggered by money in some way, right? That have like a scarcity mentality or think they're going to lose everything so they're scared of buying things, right? Yeah. Or the minute you have a little bit and you're just like, I deserve this. I'm going to spend it. Not like irresponsibly, but you feel bad about it. I just realized. What? Our little plexiglass is not in front of us. What is... Oh, no. <laughs> what happens? You need to move it right now. Well, I'll do it, a- I'll do it after. <laughs> By the way, on Google, if you search buyer's remorse, it says, how long does buyer's remorse last? Three days. Just three days, and then you're good to go. Oh, so I should have waited three <laughs> days before I pulled the trigger? Oh. Once you determine if the item you purchased qualifies, you have three days from the time of purchase to change your mind. Oh, I guess that's more... I think that's for that business you're looking at. <laughs> you're in someone's, like, like facts and answers or questions. That's hilarious. So um, we're going to be talking about making your life happier with the things you have in 15 minutes. Oh, plus, I'm so excited for this. We have the author of a book uh, about a real-life story, these gay dads who adopted a newborn baby they found abandoned at a train station. It's a story that made headlines, and we have the couple joining us uh, this hour in 30 minutes. But first, let's get into some what's trending this hour. In response to a lawsuit from Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg responded on when he thinks the cruise industry will open up. Well, the bottom line is safety, uh, right? And, and we look, I'm the Secretary of Transportation. I can't wait for us all to be uh, on the move as, as much as possible in a safe and responsible way. Uh, but it's got to be safe and responsible. And uh, uh, airlines have, airplanes have, have one safety profile. Cruise ships have another. Vehicles have another. And each one needs to be treated based on what's safe uh, for that sector. Uh, I certainly care a lot about uh, seeing the, the cruise sector thrive. And I know that CDC is hoping. So he basically said by midsummer. That's when it's going to happen. Midsummer? That's like around the corner. I don't know. I, I, I know you said you might go on a cruise with your mom, maybe. That's the last place I'd want to be. You know what? Every conversation I have with you off of air should not end up somehow on air. You do that to me? No, I don't. You go, what's the thing you said you're doing with your partner? This blah, Because you're blah. always constantly talking about your partner. That is not fair. It's true. Let's move on to this important story. To our partner. <laughs> I'm talking about the Derek Chauvin trial, actually. All right, good. Okay. Let's talk about it. Henneman County Chief Medical Examiner Dr. Andrew Baker testified today. It's the second week of the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. It's coming to a close. Dr. Baker told the court that while Floyd's health and drug use may have contributed to his death, it was police officers' actions that were the direct causes. I mean, at this point, I don't know what the defense is saying. Like, really, I mean, I know what they're saying, but I don't understand. I mean, it's a very difficult defense at this point. And I wonder what's going to happen.
hopefully the right thing. That was What's Trending This Hour, What's Happening in Entertainment News, Ryan. Okay, so if you're a Joe Rogan fan or a fan of his podcast, you may want to listen up and tune in. Mm. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. So um, Spotify has been quietly removing episodes of his podcast from their platform, according to this digital music news website. Um, So... These episodes, including as many as 42 interviews featuring a variety of controversial characters, including former Breitbart News editor uh, Milo Yanapopoulos. I don't know how to say his last name, and no one really cares. The Proud Boys founder, Gavin McInnes, and comedian Chris D'Elia. Uh, uh, he was accused of grooming underage girls in soliciting pornographic images. Now... Spotify hasn't even come out with a statement or produced a statement saying like why they've been doing it, um, which is kind of interesting. They're just doing it silently. Um, Variety has reported on a number of next episodes that feature these, you know, controversial subject matters. But apparently Joe did kind of say something about it when he made his announcement with the, the about the deal that he has with Spotify, saying that there were a few episodes they didn't want on their platform and I was like, okay, I don't care. And my thing is, he made a ton of money on that. Yeah. So of course he does He's not like, care. Um, I'm going to go away with my Fifty or a hundred million dollars. But why don't they just say something about it? Like, why doesn't Spotify just say, like, "Hey, we're removing these," just so you know? Maybe because they think it's just obvious, and we're going to do it. We don't need to announce it. Yeah, that maybe that's true. But I I do find it kind of sneaky and weird. Well, why put? It's like PR one hundred and one. Why put the attention on something that you're doing that will bring more attention to negative stuff versus just focusing on positive? But the attention's already there, though. Yeah, and then they're going to let people figure it out for themselves. Yeah, true. I mean, I'm not ever really listening to Joe Rogan anyway. Like he's just not my cup of tea. Yeah, I I agree. People who like him, I. I tend to agree. Uh, he got very lucky exploding in this podcast space. He was the tr- uh, he's a fear faster guy. Yeah. And he's like revealed that he was an a-hole. Revealed. I think he probably... And then he was in... Uh, and showed a- UFC. He was UFC guy too after. He, I don't know Like what a host means. of UFC. Ultimate fighter or something. <laughs> That is your tea report. Um, I got more coming up next hour. Don't y'all go anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Coming up on the show, as spring cleaning is underway, why having less makes us happier. How to do that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Clearing out your space can be hard. What do you let go of? What do you hold on to? How much are your things bringing you happiness versus more stress? These are questions I also ask myself. So I'm so excited to have our latest uh, guest on for this today. Peter Walsh, who's a professional organizer, author, speaker, TV host, wrote this book, Let It Go, Downsizing Your Way to a Richer, Happier Life. Thanks so much for being here. Wow, that was such a dramatic introduction. I'm all excited. (laughs) Welcome to my world. (laughs) I love it. Drama, drama, drama. Listen, I just escaped from Southern California for a few months, and now I feel like I'm right back into it. Welcome to the show. Hello. That's how it works. Well, it's so funny because I actually didn't know you were going to be on, like, earlier when I posted my Instagram post, which was all about this, about, you know, when you simplify and... People look at it as downgrading your life, but I look at it as really upgrading. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting, guys. I, um, I wrote the book after my mum passed away a few years ago, and at the time we were just looking at kind of 
down, you know, uh, kind of downsizing her home and, and really looking at letting go of a lot of stuff that the family had owned. And uh, I've been doing this for over 20 years now, helping people to kind of downsize and, and letting go of stuff, decluttering and organizing their lives. And, and the book and my work is all about kind of really right-sizing your life and making sure that the things you own help you create the life you want. And I think that's really what it's all about. You know, do the things you own really give you the kind of life you want? Because for many of us, we just surround ourselves with stuff and then at some stage look around and think, holy hell, how did I end up surrounded by all of this crap? First of all, Stop talking about me because I love stuff. Um, no, I think what's really interesting is, and I've always, is for me, my 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 thing is clothes. So I will keep clothes till the end of time because one, they have memories attached to them, and I think often uh, times it can be very difficult giving getting away these things, regardless if if it's clothes or anything else, because there's memories attached to it. So how can you conquer? Um, there's two types of clutter. I, I know that you know you like to talk about. Can you break that down? Yeah. I don't have a problem with holding on to clothes if they have great memories for you. But I honestly think, and over time, I've come to believe that you should only have three kinds of clothes in your closet. Wait, what? You should have clo- yeah, continue. clothes that you love, uh-huh. clothes that you look great in, okay. and clothes that when you step out into the world, people look at you and say, wow, you look great in those. What if that's because just like every day for me? All his clothes. That's like well, literally that's all my clothes. <laughs> but that's great. But if, if they meet those, those criteria and if your clothes fit in your closet, because if you aren't treating your clothes with respect, if they're all over the floor, if they're covered in dust, if you're not treating them with respect, then I would say you need to pare down your clothes until they fit reasonably in your space Otherwise, you and your clothes don't have a good relationship. Wow. But so I guess what's the approach to throwing things out and how do you get through that, like the attachment and maybe, um, you know, looking differently at those things? Maybe they don't serve you anymore. My attitude to the things you own is the same attitude to a relationship. And if you're in a relationship and the person you're in the relationship you're in doesn't honor and respect you, you can never be happy in that relationship. We've all been in that situation. And it's the same with your home. It's the same with your space. It's the same with your stuff. That if you overcrowd your space, if you have stuff that's just treated disrespectfully, if your stuff is not stored properly, is not displayed properly, then you can never be happy in a space with your stuff. Is your and home so clean? <laughs> like, is your no, home, yeah. like, super, like, organized? Are you Marie Kondo? Yeah. No, Are you, like, super no, intense? No. I would rather cut my throat than have my home super organized <laughs> and super crazy. No. I'm not, I'm not that guy. Yeah. But I'm also not the guy. I'm not the guy who goes out buying stuff thinking that if I just buy the next thing, I'll be happy, which is what the world tells us. If you just buy the next thing, you'll be really happy. I'm not the guy who buys that, who, who, who buys into that crazy idea. Wow. You know, does the stuff you own help you create the life you want? So it's not about the stuff you buy. I don't start there. I start with 
what kind of life do I want? Number one, I want to have, like you, Shira, I want to have great weekend brunches. I love Bloody Mary. Mm, so oh so that's where I start. You know, that's, that's what I want. I want. I want happiness and warmth and friendships. So that's where I start with the kind of life I want. Yes. So, so, so that's, that's the highest criteria for the life I want. So the, the things I want around me are not a whole lot of stuff, but a whole lot of great friends. I, so, I, so I, how much does your stuff control you, right? Or versus you controlling it. it? Or like, yeah, I spend it on experiences versus things. Totally on the same page. Mm. Well, Peter Walsh, so, we, we, we need to wrap up because we're out of time. So but good. we would love to have you back on as we continue to talk about the cleaning of our space for the spring cleaning. You are great. And again, Peter Walsh is the author of Let It Go, Downsizing Your Way to a Richer, Happier Life. Thanks again for joining us. Coming up on the show, these gay dads adopted a newborn baby they found abandoned at a train station and made a book out of it. They're sharing their story with us next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. A gay couple who adopted an abandoned newborn that they found on a New York City subway platform are continuing to share their story and now have a children's book that's called Our Subway Baby. They are joining us right now. We've been so excited to have you on. We've been talking about your story all week. Uh, Pete Mercurio and Danny Stewart, thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Y'all were in y'all's early 30s when y'all found your son. And I I couldn't imagine... This is like two thousand. Yeah, by it was the way. a two thousand, yeah. right? I just couldn't imagine being like, "Oh, I'm going to take this baby home in my early thirties. What was going on in y'all's mind at that moment? I'll let Danny start because he was he was the one who found them. So, get well. You know, it's not something that we actually planned for, <laughs> so it was totally right. unexpected. Um, and uh, yeah, we just we kind of just went with it. Um, when we had the opportunity, we just said yes. Yeah. And we didn't have a lot yeah. of time to plan either. Uh-huh. The, the way that all the events unfolded, um, we just sort of almost became what we call, uh, what we came to call to ourselves, mm. uh, the closest two gay men can have to an unplanned pregnancy. Yeah. I <laughs> totally. mean, seriously, when I was reading that, that's what it. I felt like. I was like, oh, my God, they're just going through so much. Yeah. And did this story make, uh, it got a lot of attention at that point. It's been getting a lot of attention since 2000. Are you surprised that people um, continue to be drawn to what happened? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it just kind of takes us by surprise that the story still resonates and still reaches people, um, you know, over almost 21 years later. Yeah. I mean, for most of that time, we're just going about our ordinary lives. You know, and then um, uh, something happens and it, it gets all over the place and then everybody's, you know, uh, interested. And it's great because we hear from so many people this time, especially from all over the world, all over the world and from so many countries that um, where uh, they're, you know, to be gay is is, is criminal. And they've yeah. reached out and, and, and just uh, have uh, said, you know, they're so inspired and hope that one day in their country they can do the same thing. It's really been remarkable. We're, we've been touched by all the responses we've gotten. Oh, my God. I can only imagine. How, how did the, the, your story, especially when you found Kevin, your son, on the, on, on, in the subway, and then I guess how did it get into the press, right? Like how did that kind of happen where the story became this huge national thing? 
I always wonder what stories like these. Yeah, I mean, which time it sort of, we sort of had, like, so Danny had, you know, a bunch of local media the, the, day, the, the day after he found him, right, just as the Good Samaritan and Hero Who Found the Baby. And then yeah. I wrote an article for the New York Times in 2013 just sort of sharing the story, and that, re, that like, put new batteries into the story, you know. <laughs> they yeah. got replaced, and it took off again. And then just recently, you know, the book, uh, Our Subway Baby, came out in September, and somebody from the BBC uh, just asked to write about it, um, write about our story. It was a all-over-email interview. You know, we, I never even spoke to this this writer. I'd forgotten that she even had done it. And last Saturday, she said it's going to go uh, get published tomorrow, which was Easter Sunday. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, okay. You know, I'm thinking to myself, it's a holiday. People will read it maybe on Monday. It was like no sooner than 10, 15 minutes after it got published on BBC, we were starting to receive emails and messages on social media from people reading it. It was so fast wow. and so crazy. So once again, you know, uh, the batteries were replaced in the story and it sort of took off again. So that's how it happened this time. Yeah. yeah. Well, wow. we want to talk to you more about everything. We still have a lot of questions. Sure, we'll be back with, uh, yeah. with parents and also an authors of Our Subway Baby. That's next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are back with Pete Mercurio, author of the children's book, Our Subway Baby, and his husband, Danny Stewart, who have just this incredible story that's been talked about for the past 21 years, about how they found a newborn baby on a, at a subway station in New York City, made national headlines. It continues to inspire people now in the social media age. So uh, I guess, what is the book about? Like, talk about making this story into a children's book. And why a children's book? Very good question. Yeah. Um, well, the book is basically the story of how uh, we became a family, and it's told in uh, it's written in first uh, person direct address to my son as an infant, and basically explaining to uh, him uh, how he was found and how he came to live with us and, and be in our family um, from you know from the day he was found to the day he uh, came home with us. And it sort of all happens in the month of December, or you know, in the fall of two thousand, and then ends in the month of December. So it's, you know, the cover has some snow falling on it because the day we picked him up, there was actually flurries in the air and we were carrying him through the flurries. It was really kind of um, such a New York scene in a way. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, it takes place, you know, basically he comes home right before Christmas. So it's kind of also a Christmas story. Um, Why a children's book? I I think it was just, we wanted to share it in a way that was accessible to all for all ages. You know, uh, kids weren't going to read an adult book and um, parents seem to be and older, older people, you know, adults seem to be uh, taken to this book as, as, as well as their kids. So it's been quite remarkable and, and awe-inspiring the amount of feedback we've gotten from adults and kids alike. Yeah, and I'm sure also adults, uh, parents in the LGBTQ plus space, it's nice to see that representation too. And also in the in terms of adoption, which is ch- so challenging. It can be. Yes. Yeah. P- you no, know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, of course, our story is unique. Um, so we're not trying to pretend like this is a typical adoption story. Um, it's truly miraculous of how we became a family. And But you're right. Representation does matter. Um, you know, we every night we would read bedtime stories to our son. 
He loved to be read to. And of course, there's, you know, when he was growing up, there was very few books that had any type of theme related to LGBT at all. I mean, we, one of the books that we read, one of his favorites was uh, Entango Mix 3, mm-hmm. which was one of his favorites. And so we would, we, we read that a lot to him, but there wasn't a lot of books um, back then. Yeah, I mean, I just appreciate y'all for, y'all just seem like really great parents. And because this this story got so big on a national and global level at this point, I am sitting here wondering, has the birth mom or any of the birth parents reached out? Like they were like, oh, wait, this child, it happened. It's correlating to the same timeline. Has that ever happened yet? It has not. No, we, we, I kind of expected it to the first time the story went, um, you know, got sort of told uh, through the New York Times piece in, in 2013, um, I thought it was going to happen then. And it, and it hasn't happened now either. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, you there's, know. There's been ample opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's just, exactly. the day after he was found, I was like, it was on all of the no- local New York City um, stations. And it was on a full, full 24-hour news cycle. It was constantly playing. It was in the papers. It was on, on in the news. And so there was, and of course, the police were searching for uh, the biological parents and no one ever turned up. No one ever stepped forward. And there's, it, and it, it would be really easy um, yeah. for, to, for someone to find Kevin. I think they would know who we are by now. Yeah, they yeah. would definitely be. Because you know, they would know they, the circumstances. Yeah, the person would know the circumstances of what happened on in August twenty eighth, two thousand, and you know, with it being in the press, you know, if you have, uh, uh, you know, Google it, you know, you'll 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 figure out who we are. And so. you know, Kevin is twenty one now. What does he think about all of this? <laughs> uh, you know, we've asked him that several times uh, over the court past twenty twenty one years. Well, of course, when he was able to speak um, <laughs> <laughs> his speaking age, and. He has just said, this, this is my life. I don't, I don't, he doesn't understand what is so, mm. why people are seeing, why the, he thinks that they think this is so special and inspiring. It's like, yeah, this is just my life. You know, he's amused by it. He's like, I don't understand what the interest is. <laughs> well, I mean, people love love and they love good parents and they yeah. just love good people. And that's so, what yeah. attracts yeah. stories. I mean, yeah. It, and yeah. so it's not shocking to me. But also when you're in it and you're in the moment, you're like, yeah, this is just life. This is I don't know right. any other life. And so right. I, I'm so, so he, excited for you all. Like y'all are just so great. Thank this, you. Thank this you. It's a real good story for me. <laughs> And I normally Thank don't you. have feelings on this show. So yeah, he's usually I'm a actually skeptic feeling about, it. you know. Yeah, I'm actually really thing. feeling. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to cry. So I guess like, let what, it out. Let it out. what <laughs> is the uh, takeaway from all of this as we wrap things up? Where, where do you hope to take your life in this story? What happens now? I, I don't know. We're taking it one day at a time right now. So we don't know what happens next with the story or, you know, our life. We're probably just going to, you know, after all this buzz dies down, go back to our normal lives and, and you know, resume normal activities. Uh, I don't. I don't know what's next. Yeah. And I would say, I mean, I, I just have been so uplifted by all yeah. the outpouring of people and the support and the love, and how the, it, this story has resonated so much to them. I mean, it, to me, it just speaks to like all the stuff that's happened in the last year. Oh yeah. Um, it's been a dark place, and so I think this story, what resonates so much for people is it is a story of love and hope and possibility of something better. And so it, it's that connection, reconnection to humanity and something good, and I think has really spoken to and has meant a lot to people. And that, to me, has been, meant a lot 
that has really been something that's uplifted me through this time. And I've really appreciated how much um, this story is humbling as it is just our life that it is that people have really taken to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, not to take this off of a serious note, but y'all like are really hot dads, by the way, as well. So y'all are putting <laughs> a lot the, going for the DILF oh, in that's funny. dads. That is, that's a, you know, that's a first. Can we quote you? Yeah, yeah we're gonna please. Them, you can quote Ryan Mitchell, me. hotties. You put that on, my on your next uh, <laughs> book, like, book thing. Forget dads. This is a zaddy account. This is beautiful. I'm, I'm right now making a meme with your with a line crediting you. <laughs> OMG. Oh my God! Thank you well, so much. Well, again, for being thank with you us. to Pete Mercurio and Danny Stewart. Check out the book "Our Subway Baby" out now. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Thank you so Pleasure much. Speaking with you guys. Coming you up on the show, the white party in Palm Springs has been rescheduled. We've got the latest next on What's Turning This Hour. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Coming up this hour, Lambda Legal joins us to talk about the anti-trans bills being. Pushed and pitched in North Carolina that would force school staffers to out trans kids. This is so messed up. What we can all do coming up in 15 minutes. But right now, let's get into some what's trending this hour. Workers at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama, they gave the online retail giant a victory when they voted against forming a union and cut off a path that labor activists had hoped would lead to similar efforts throughout the country, uh, company and around the country and beyond which uh, after months of fighting, Amazon won in the end. So a union will not be created at this warehouse in Alabama. That happened today. Uh, But this is for my Palm Springs friends. You know who you are. What voice was that? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Things come out of me. White party in Palm Springs is something we all love to go to every single year. Not just those in Palm Springs. People come in town and travel to attend the white party. Well, it was rescheduled from this month to September. Founder Jeffrey Sanker announced recently, though, that the party, uh, the circuit party will take place now during Halloween 2021. The multi-day party is now set to begin October 29th and conclude the morning of November 1st. They said uh, the website DJ... Lineup and tickets on sale very soon. Our goal is to bring back a fresh new grand white party experience. So we are thrilled to introduce an all new three day white party Halloween festival. Yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people who like that party. I know. So we I've we, never been. Doesn't really seem like my type of party. Me neither. I haven't been. I wasn't invited last. You remember there was a, they invited Michaela. No, Allie. that's Dinah Shore. Oh, that's the wrong See, one. See, you, how you going to be an ally? Don't you getting your queer I parties mixed up, up the parties. <laughs> the white party is one that everyone goes to. Yeah, because it's white. <laughs> wait, wait for both of us to make it awkward. Well, exciting stuff. Oh, Happy to see Palm Springs parties fun. and festivals would, back up and running. I would love to. I Actually, the really interesting thing about this whole thing is I know that um, there was some stuff. There's some tea online. Oh. Oh, you know how the hashtag gays over COVID account. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, some of these people involved were kind of involved in throwing parties and doing things during the whole pandemic. And so I think they're taking a more responsible route, you know? 
Well, they also have liabilities in this case. Yeah, but I'm, I'm happy they're being more responsible with it and saying, we can party later. Let's get past this. Let's do this. And maybe if y'all want to, if you think I would enjoy the white party, invite me. I'll come. I'll come host something. Slide into our DMs at LDT No, I didn't show. say we. I said I. You know we have fun when we're together at Palm <laughs> that's Springs. That's true. That's true. Actually, our Palm Springs fun has been great. That's true. Yeah. Okay. That's what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news, Ryan? Okay, so um, Lil Nas X Satan Shoes, you know, the one that was got all the Republicans mm. and the Christians upset, yep. they're being recalled. It's time for the T-Report, those pop culture stories trending right now. There was a whole suing situation happening with Nike and the private streetwear company uh, Mischief. Um, they have basically um, come to a settlement where they are saying that these shoes can be voluntarily recalled by anyone who bought them. So if y'all purchase one of these exclusive shoes, um, you can return them for the original price of $1,018. But my thing is, it's all voluntarily. So are people actually going to return these shoes? I don't really know what the point of Nike asking for this part of the settlement. It just seems like Nike was just trying to be on the good side of the conservative like Christian people and say, oh, well, we made a statement. We sued. We did all these things. So don't look like we're a part of it you're right you know they want to just kind of keep it whatever it is so if you want to return your shoes if you bought them because i don't know many people that did well no they were sold out though yeah they were sold out it's i guess you know it's 666 shoes because that's the evil maybe they only had six pairs (laughs) so that's your team report (laughs) or were there 666 that, that's your team report. I, Did you say it and I just missed it? That's your team report. Tell me. And um, if you want to check out any story that I have covered on today's show, we are channelq.com. And of course, I love to spill. And I'm always spilling at LGT show on our social meds. Keep the conversation going. And I'm done. We're wrapping up the shows we always do with our Yes Queen of the Day. Yes, Queen. According to the Federal Aviation Administration, black women make up less than 1% of all certified pilots. So that realization was a wake-up call for Carol Hopson and empowered her to create change within the aviation industry. So she said there's a huge opportunity gap, and she's teamed up with United Aviate and Sisters of the Skies, a nonprofit organization that supports black female pilots to enroll 100 black women in flight school by 2035. I love this. Very cool. And United Airlines also wants to reach a similar goal. Earlier this week, they actually announced the launch of its flight school, the United Aviate Academy, to train at least 5,000 pilots by 2030, half of whom will be women and people of color. Oh, okay. I mean, we need more of those. I just, I like the idea of, like, just a pilot school and a flight school and all that good stuff, especially for black folks. Why not? Yeah. So, go Carol Hopson. What an inspiration powerhouse. Sorry that you can't do it. You kind of don't meet the necessarily qualifications. <laughs> Even if I wanted to. I mean, you could do it, but just not at this place. Yeah, there's, thank you. There's pilot school I'm sure. We, I could Google if I need to. <laughs> this was not about me, although, I mean, this is cool. I know, but you just look like your heart was set on being a, the next female pilot, and I was just like, you can't be at I this. I don't think I would be, I can barely drive a car. Yeah, that's true. You do not want me driving. That's very true. A plane. Very true. Just saying. And that does it for our Yaz Queen of the Day and our show today. 
Yes, Quay. But don't you worry. We are back Monday. Weekdays here for you on Channel Q, live 2 to 6 p.m. Pacific, 5 to 9 p.m. Eastern. On Monday's show, we have Semler, the first openly queer artist to hit number one on the iTunes Christian music charts, joining us. Oh, and she's been on the show before. Yeah. She was on the show before as Grace, that's her real name, but Semler's her artist name. So we're excited to have her yeah, on. But it's still the same person. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Plus, uh, the CDC director is declaring racism a serious public health threat. So we'll be discussing that on the show yeah, Monday. People are dying. Mm-hmm. So, health. So uh, stick around to hang out with us live. But if you want to listen to our podcast or the shows we've had or our interviews, join our podcast family. Just go to the Odyssey app and search Let's Go There or wherever podcasts are available. We make it easy. We are sending you love and light. And honey, remember to slay. Have a great weekend. See you Monday. Bye, y'all.